All right, we're in 1 Kings 19. We made it there uh, as we've worked our way through 1 Kings. And we've been in 1 Kings 19 for a couple of few weeks now. And tonight we should finish that chapter. Just a quick review so far. Um, we've talked about so many things, but just a quick review. There's three main characters I base the outline on. First of all, I talked about a threatening queen. That's in the first two verses, chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Uh, Jezebel, very upset, furious with Elijah. Uh, he had just slaughtered, basically after the showdown on Mount Carmel in chapter 18, slaughtered all these prophets of Baal. She's furious with him, and so she threatens to kill him. And then you have, and so you have a discouraged prophet, secondly. You have a threatening queen, then you have a discouraged prophet. And uh, he is a, he, it says he, he rises to flee and leaves his servant in Beersheba, which is in the south of in Israel. And then verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested, requested for himself that he might die, said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, I'm not better than my father's. And so we, saw, we see now we have a discouraged prophet in our hands. But then we find thoroughly a, a loving God through the rest of this chapter, a loving God, 5 through 21. Now, how does God show his love for Elijah? This is how it's interesting to see how God deals with his prophet in light of what's taking place. How does he deal with him? How does he show his love? Well, I believe there's five ways is how I've based it at least. First of all, the Lord ministers to Elijah's physical needs, verses 5 to 8, as we've already talked about. He allows him to rest. He feeds him through miraculously in the desert. He uh, gives him water to drink, all in preparation for this journey, this great journey, this long journey to Mount Horeb. And that's where he's going to go, Horeb, the place where God met with Moses, also called Mount Sinai. And, uh, and so he takes this great journey, and, and the Lord meets his physical needs. And then secondly, the Lord invites Elijah to unburden his heart. We left off there last week, look at verse 9. Then he came there to a cave, that's Mount Horeb, and he lodges there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've torn down your altars, they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he arrives, after a 40-day journey, he arrives at the destination Horeb, Mount Sinai. He lodges in a cave there, and as usual, as has been happening throughout his ministry, the word of the Lord comes to him. It's always operating on the basis of the word of the Lord coming to him. And he says, this time, this question from the Lord is, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I do not take this as a rebuke. I, take, I do not take this as a rebuke to Elijah. I take this as an open-ended question for Elijah to answer. I simply think the Lord is saying, I want you to reveal your heart to me. Tell me what your thoughts are. Uh, not... To a man, you're not giving this information to a man, but to the Lord. If the Lord was rebuking him, I think he'd make it far more obvious than this, uh, than, rather than this question. And I think here we can observe, in this context, we can observe the Lord's care for his prophet. He's cared for his prophet so far. He's continuing to. He allows him to go to Horeb to meet with him at the same mountain that God met Moses at. And I think this is what Elijah wanted to do ultimately anyway. And so he's caring for his faithful prophet. Can anyone deny the faithfulness of Elijah to this point? No one can deny that. So it follows, at least in my way of thinking, here's another evidence 
that God is showing his concern, his love for Elijah. Elijah has this bottled up legitimate concern inside of him, and he is going to give, he's going to pour it out before the Lord. Is this legitimate, by the way? Is his complaint a legitimate one? I believe it is. There are others in the Bible who, like, who did this, like David, often. For example, in Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, David says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint to him. I declare my trouble before him. The word complaint there really has to do with the meditation of David's heart, the thoughts of David's heart. And, that, and he pours his heart out before the Lord. He does it often in the Psalms. You see that again and again. This is what the Lord wants. He wants us to pour out our hearts into him and, and tell him all that's on our heart. This is what he wants you to do. But here's the problem. Here's what we normally do. We run to another person with our thoughts, right? We run to another person with our complaints. We pour our soul to someone else. But, you know, there's a time and a place for that. But that time and place is after you've poured out your heart and soul to the Lord. That's where we need to go first. And how many times in this church have we told you this again and again to go to the Lord first and pour out your soul to him? And then maybe you won't have to go anywhere else. This is what the Lord wants. He wants you to bring him your complaints, your burdens, your prayers, your praise, your problems. Take it to him and leave it there. Leave it there. Elijah does this. Now we're going to break down his answer one statement at a time. First of all, he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He says that in verse 10. That word zealous expresses a very strong emotion, whereby a quality, some quality or possession of the object is desired by the subject. The central idea is jealousy. Elijah is jealous for the Lord and for his cause. In Exodus 20, verse 5, the Lord says, You shall not worship idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a jealous God. That same, the word jealous there is the same word translated zealous in this passage. Uh, God rightly wants, God rightly deserves glory for himself. And Elijah is jealous for God. He's jealous for a jealous God. And he rightly wants the, God, the glory to go to God. Elijah sees all the idolatry of Israel. We've talked about this. He sees this idolatry everywhere for ba the Baal worship going, taking place. He consume, he's consumed in his heart with zeal for the, the honor and glory of God. That's interesting about this word, zealous. The theological word book of the Old Testament says this. This word is used to denote a passionate, consuming zeal focused on God that results in doing the, his will and the maintaining of his honor in the face of the ungodly acts of men and, and nations. And so in the face of ungodly acts of men, Elijah, as we've seen, is maintaining his zeal for the Lord. And then it goes on to say, the theological word book goes on to say, Phineas, Elijah, and Jehu are particular examples of this zeal. Elijah is an example of the zeal, this tremendous zeal he has for God. So is Elijah's statement to the Lord the truth? Is this the truth? Is he really zealous for the Lord? Is he truly zealous for the Lord? Now, there's no doubt about that. He's proven that from the beginning. From, from uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, he's shown his zeal for the Lord over and over again. That's why I am puzzled by the strange comments I read from commentators on this, in this chapter. It's very strange. One commentator said this, Elijah had spent those 40 days and 40 nights, that is when he traveled to Horeb, 
He had spent those 40 days and 40 nights mentally rehearsing this angry speech. The angry speech, he calls it in verse 10. He says that he would, this speech he would give to God the next time he had a chance. He's thinking about, here's what I'm going to say to God. I'm so angry and mad. I'm going to tell God this. So for 40 days he thinks about this. By the time Elijah arrived at Horeb, he had told himself so many half-truths, he was starting to believe them. He had his little speech down pat in verse 10. All these statements are half-truths. Well, based on that reasoning, I guess Elijah is trading in his entire character of godliness and righteousness and, and uh, boldness for that, a character of a liar. I just, I just seem, it seems hard for me to believe this true-hearted prophet of God would lie to the one he loves the most to his face to make a trip all the way to Horeb to the mountain of God where Moses had met with God and now he's going to lie to the face of God? I find it hard to believe. Instead of trying to psychoanalyze the motives of Elijah, which, by the way, only God can do, only God knows the hearts of all men, I, think the, I believe the safest approach to interpreting this passage is to take the actual facts of Scripture that are recorded here and base it on that. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and I have no doubt that that's true. I have no reason not to believe this statement. That's exact, because that's exactly what he's done. Look at chapter 18, verse 36. In the uh, showdown at Mount Carmel. Chapter 18, verse 36. At that time, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. And then look at verse 38. The fire of God fell, consumed her burnt offering, everything in its vicinity. The three statements that are made in verse 36 are all vindicated by this action of God. The Lord is shown to be God. Elijah is shown to be God's servant. And Elijah is shown to have done these things at the command of God, at the word of God. Has Elijah been zealous for the Lord as he says he has? Yes, he has, without a doubt. He's been enthusiastic for the Lord. He's been exclusively devoted to God, unlike the Baal worshippers. And, so and so he says, I've been zealous for the Lord. I believe it. It's true. Now, the next three statements he makes are an accusation against Israel. He says in verse 10, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. This is why I've been zealous. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Well, what covenant? Well, based on the parallels with Moses, we talked about that last week. We'll talk about it again this week. The parallels with Moses in this section right here, Elijah and Moses, based on those parallels, I would have to say it's the Mosaic Covenant, the one that God established on Mount Sinai with, with Moses. That covenant is found in Exodus 19 to 24, of which are, the Ten Commandments are a part. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Well, as we've been talking about since chapter, I was going to say 16, before then, you go back to Jeroboam, and you see all the false gods, and you see the Baal worship taking place. Israel broke this covenant in Elijah's time. For that matter, they broke it in Moses' time as well. They forsook it, it says here. They abandoned it. Abandoned the covenant of God. In chapter 18, verse 18, Elijah tells, look at chapter 18, verse 18, Elijah says to Ahab, after being accused of being the troubler of Israel, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken 
You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You have followed the Baals. Well, this Mosaic covenant that was made by God is, is a conditional one. It's based on obedience or lack of obedience. Exodus 19.5, the Lord says, Now then, if, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my possession among all the peoples. And so this is how the Lord lays it out. If you obey, then you're going to be my special possession. And what, is, what do the people do? They, they agree to it. Moses tells the people all these words, and in Exodus 19, they say this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They agree to the covenant. But now they've broken the covenant. They've forsaken the covenant. And that is why Elijah is so distraught. They have broken the, and forsaken the covenant of God. But then he goes on in verse 10, 1 Kings 19. He says, they have, toned, they have torn down your altars. Lord, they've torn down your altars. They've torn them down. There's no, why? But there's no need for them anymore. Altar is a place where they offered sacrifice to God. And by and large, that's not happening anymore. So they tore them down. This phrase, torn down, actually means to destroy by tearing down. Wanted to wipe out the worship of God. They, they show their utter hatred for the Lord with this act. They not only abandoned the Lord, they despised the Lord. Totally despised. 1 Kings 16, 33 says this. Ahab, the, the guy who's in charge now, Ahab did more to provoke, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel. That's his goal, provoking the Lord than all the kings of Israel who were before him, showing their utter hatred. So they tear down the altars of God. Elijah states this, true, true statement, not a half-truth. And then he says, they've killed your prophets with the sword. True again, killed your prophets. Look at chapter 18, verse 4. We talked about this. Jezebel, it says, destroyed the prophets of the Lord. Again, as I said before, it does not mean Jezebel herself was out there killing the prophets with her own hands. She gives the orders. Uh, executioners carry this out. The verse says this, they have killed your prophets. They did, the, plur the plural. The sons of Israel did. They did it. Queen Jezebel, Jezebel is in a position of authority. She gives the orders. They carry it out. And so you not only see this promotion of Baal worship taking place, but you see an utter hatred of Yahweh by the leadership of Israel in this case, the first lady of Israel. She is hating the Lord's prophet so much, she puts him to death. But by the way, an attack on the Lord's prophet is an attack on who? It's an attack on the Lord himself, right? Isn't that what, what happened with Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9? He's on the road to Damascus, and the Lord appears to him, and he says to him, what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because an attack on... The church is an attack on Christ. Now make, don't make any mistake about it. Jezebel hates not only the prophets, she hates the Lord as well. And it's not just her. It's a national problem, according to this accusation given by the, the faithful prophet Elijah. Now, these three acts of hatred committed against the cause of Yahweh reveal something about the zeal of Elijah. They tell us something about his zeal. Notice the emphasis again. Look at the verse. He says, they have forsaken your covenant. And these are emphasized. They have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets. Israel, uh, uh, rather, Elijah is distraught, not for his own sake. He's distraught for the cause of God. He's distraught for the Lord's cause. He says, in effect, look at what this nation has done to your cause, Lord. Very upset. 
He's grieved. He's out of sorts. He's discouraged. Why? Because he sees the Lord being dishonored by the nation. That's why. It's not because Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you. That's not the reason, really. The reason is he's distraught over Israel forsaking God. He sees the covenant of God being abandoned. He knows the altars of God have been, has been destroyed. He has heard about the Lord's prophets being killed. He wants God, Elijah more than anything, wants God to be glorified. And yet, what's happening? He's saying the Lord vilified by Israel. And so, he's very distressed about this. And then he says, finally, in verse 10, And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, one of thing, three things is true about this statement he makes here. Either Elijah is lying to God and telling him half-truths, which I find very hard to believe, knowing the character of Elijah, the commitment of Elijah, the faithfulness of Elijah, the prophet of God who does what, what God says to do. Or secondly, he truly thinks he's the only prophet left. He thinks, I'm the only one left. Now, if he thinks that, he would be wrong, and he should know he was wrong, because we know from 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 3, that Obadiah is a man who fears God, first of all. He fears God, working directly for King Ahab. He fears the Lord. He's not a prophet. He does fear the Lord. But Obadiah told Elijah in his own words about prophets he had saved alive. Look at chapter 18, verse 13. This is Obadiah talking to Ahab. Has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? That I, ha I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Elijah knew this. Did he forget this information? He says, I, and here, he got, here in verse 10 he says, I alone am left. By the way, it's not the first time he said it. Chapter 18, verse 22. Look at that. This is before the showdown at Mount Carmel. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Baal's prophets are 450 men. So, is that the case? Is he, does he think he's the only prophet left? Well, there's a third possibility. He thinks he's the only prophet left who is publicly taking his stand for the Lord. Obadiah was afraid. Remember that chapter we talked about? Obadiah was afraid that Ahab, if he made the wrong move, Ahab might put him to death. Uh, Obadiah, by the way, was in a position that was, could have been tougher in some ways than Elijah was in. Here he is, this high visible employee, this high ranking employee of the King Ahab, the Baal worshiper. Here's Obadiah, God fearer, who wants to serve the Lord, wants to please the Lord, wants to reverence God, and yet he's walking his tightrope because he's working for this Baal worshiper at the same time. Very difficult situation. Today we would say Obadiah was a dedicated believer working for a CEO of a company, an atheistic CEO of a company who hates God. Had a difficult spot he's in. And at the same time, Elijah is a unique prophet in that miracles are, are being worked through his ministry. Probably something the 100 prophets never even saw. Elijah's unique. But could it be that Elijah is saying, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord who takes a stand in public, who's taking a public stand? I think it's a possible interpretation. And now they want to get rid of him. And if they do, who's left? Maybe nobody to serve the Lord. We'll see how the Lord responds to that. Now, if we take Elijah's answer at face value, as I do, what he says here in verse 2 is face value, then it becomes a very convicting statement. Very convicting statement. Instead of accusing Elijah of telling half-truths and having a pity party and all this stuff, I am now convicted of my lack of zeal and passion for God. 
as I read this. As I see the commitment, the zeal, the passion that Elijah had for the Lord, which he did, there's no doubt about it, now I'm convicted about the lack of passion that I have for the Lord. Elijah was clearly zealous for the Lord's cause, so I'm forced to ask myself the question, in light of this, am I zealous for the Lord's cause? Am I zealous for his cause? Does it upset me? When I see our country forsaking God, does, it, does that upset me? Does it upset you when, when you see this? Does it bother you? Does it, or am I torn inwardly when I see Christ, the gospel of Christ blasphemed? Does it just tear me up inside? You know, how do I respond when I see the things of God trampled upon? How do I respond to that? It makes me wonder how much zeal I really have for the Lord as I look at Elijah. And so this invitation by God for Elijah to reveal his true feelings, pour out his soul, is another way the Lord shows his love for his prophet. And then thirdly, the Lord reveals himself to Elijah. He reveals himself to Elijah. Look at verse 11. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the fire, after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing. This is a theophany, a, an appearance of God, very similar, by the way, to the way, another parallel, to the way the Lord appeared to Moses on this same mountain. Uh, in Exodus 19, there's, nat there's similar natural phenomena that take place that accompany the presence of God. For example, Exodus 19:16 says there was thunder when, when Moses went to the mountain. There was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. Verse 18 of Exodus 19. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. So there's some similarities between the natural phenomena that take place between Elijah and Moses. And then there's a similarity between the revelation of God to Moses. When, God, when Moses said, show me your glory, Lord. Now let me read this to you, or you can turn there if you want to. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. <clears throat> Exodus 33, 18. Let's look at what happened when God passed before Moses. Exodus 33, 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock. Notice the wording. There's a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock. It will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away. You shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. Look at uh, chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Generations, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So you see these similarities in the revelation. God hid Moses because nobody can see God and live, right? And Elijah, as we'll see in the coming verses, ends up in the back of the cave during this revelation of God. 
And as the Lord passed by Elijah, so he passes by Moses. These two men are unique in human history. And the similarities, by the way, the similarities in their ministry should not be overlooked. Even in the New Testament, again, we're brought in contact with two men, Moses and Elijah. Where was that at? Transfiguration. Turn to Luke chapter 20, Luke 9, 28. Normally don't do this, but, but we need to read a, a few passages here in regard to this. Luke 9, 28 says this. <clears throat> Some eight days after these sayings, he took along, Jesus took along Peter and John and James. He went up to the mountain to pray, another mountain. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. And his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him. Who are those two men? Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, talking about his death, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but they were, when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as, they were, as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent reported to no one any of the things that they had seen. And so you see similarities here. And of those three, the one that's, you know, Moses and Elijah, great men, great prophets. In the Old Testament, obviously, Jesus is the one who we look to, though, right? Who, who far outshines anyone. But you see these similarities. Now, we go back to 1 Kings 19. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12. By the way, I've thought about this for three weeks, and not easy. For me, at least, not easy. There are different ways in, when this, in which this section has been viewed. I respect that. I can't go into all that detail about how everybody looks at these pass this passage here, but I'm going to take the view I believe best lines up with the context. I, be I believe this personally. I don't want to be super dogmatic either. I'm going to be honest with you. don't want to be super dogmatic on this because many have wrestled with this passage. Not everyone agrees. I don't consider it easy to deal with at all. So that's my disclaimer. But here's how I view this passage. As the Lord is passing by there, there are three powerful demonstrations that accompany him. Without a doubt, there are. First of all, there's wind. It's described as great and strong. Uh, it tore the mountains. It breaks the rocks in pieces. Actually, a devastating wind. Very devastating. Can you imagine being Elijah, witnessing this? He's supposed to stand on the mountain before the Lord, by the way. Can you imagine him standing there, seeing this? Then there's an earthquake. Have to, has to be a terrifying experience. I've never been in an earthquake, personally. Maybe some of you here, probably somebody here has. Uh, Sandy has, I know, uh, in Alaska. Uh, it's got to be a terrifying experience to be in a severe earthquake. Even a slight tremble might be, uh, uh, you know, unnerving. Um, I've only seen it on TV, fortunately. It's all the effects. I was watching uh, the, the World Series game in 1988, I think it was, San Francisco. And Al Michaels announcing brought the earthquake in San Francisco to the public as it happened during the baseball game. And all the effects that were taking place out of that, amazing, unbelievable. I've only seen it on, on TV. I don't want to participate in an earthquake, by the way. You can imagine the devastation. Can you imagine Elijah? <laughs> this is all taking place. This wind. 
hurricane force winds, I don't know, and then you have an earthquake that takes place, and you're somehow viewing all this, or maybe not viewing all this, and we'll see in a second. And then thirdly, you have a fire. I'm sure, just like the previous two demonstrations, it's a fire like none other, you know, a roaring fire that can't even be described, probably. But what do these three phenomena of nature have in common? <clears throat> well, the Lord's not in any of these, right? He's not manifesting himself in any of these natural phenomena. He will manifest himself, I believe, in the fourth uh, manifestation for, that for Elijah, by the way, is not so overwhelming that he cannot bear up under it. Look at the NASB. It says in verse 12, after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle blowing. Now, that's another interesting thing, the, the translation. Because as you see this translated different ways, and you have different guys that come in and say, no, it should be this, no, it should be that. The literal translation, as best I can determine, that I see is this. After the fire, there was a sound or a voice. You can translate that word sound or voice uh, either way. There was a sound or a voice, a fine whisper or a low whisper. So after the fire, there was a sound or a voice, a low whisper is what I'm going to tell you what the literal translation is, although some would disagree with that. Uh, as I say... Uh, I, I, you know, with the disagreement, I believe there's a contrast being drawn here. I truly do. To show us how the, normally, the Lord normally manifests himself. And that is through his word. I think it's through his word. It was not the Lord's normal way to show demonstrations of nature like he did at Mount Carmel. What did he do at Mount Carmel? Fire of God fell, right? Fire of God fell. Um, and the Lord can work that way. And he has done demonstrations like that of great power. And he will do it again in 2 Kings chapter 1, as a matter of fact. But um, Elijah was, you know, and by the way, Elijah was unique. As I said in his ministry, he saw all these miracles. But I believe the Lord typically works through his word. I think it's how, and throughout history and today, through his word. And, and that has been happening, by the way, throughout the ministry of Elijah. The word of the Lord continues to come to him, and he responds to it again and again. And by the way, even the demonstration on the Mount Carmel with the fire of God falling did not convince Ahab and Jezebel. They did not repent. We, we see people falling down on their face saying the Lord is God. We don't see a wholesale repentance of the nation. And, and if you believe Elijah's take, he certainly doesn't see it either. He doesn't see a wholesale repentance. And there's Jezebel running him out of, out of town. Then I'll kill him. I'll kill all the prophets. And so that didn't convince the people. By the way, the miracles of Jesus did not necessarily convince the people of his time when he did miracles. And in Luke 16, Jesus spoke, remember Jesus spoke of the rich man in hell? The rich man wanted, wanted to warn his brothers, uh, you know, we don't want, he, he didn't want them to come to this place of torment. Let me read to you Luke 16, 19, I'm sorry, Luke 16, 28. Uh, the, the rich man said this, I have five brothers. I want them warned lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, wait a minute. In other words, let them hear the scripture. Let them hear the word of God, right? He says, but he said, no, Father Abraham, that's not good enough. If, he implies, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent, you see. If someone rises from the dead and goes to them, they'll repent. Surely they'll see this miracle, right? And they'll repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So even, even if there's a miracle to take place, yes, Jesus did miracles to vindicate himself and his, that he was Messiah and all, and, and some people believed. And they saw it. Not everybody did. Many didn't. Many did not. Jesus says, they have God's word. Let them take that to heart. That's what they need to do. So I believe 
I believe in my wrestlings with this passage, still a work in progress on this passage, I believe he's talking about his word. By the way, let me say this. Let me add this thought. You know, the King James says still small voice here, right? And that's what we all know that grew up with the King James. You know, people today claim to hear a still small voice, which they interpret in a number of different ways, which they basically they mean a personal word from God outside of the scripture. Beside the scripture, they're receiving some kind of direct revelation from God. And you cannot take this verse, whatever people want to wrestle with the interpretation, you cannot take this verse and, and make a doctrine of extra biblical revelation based on that. You can't do that. God speak, how does God speak to, the, to us today? Through his written word, right? I love, doc, by the way, Dr. Martin here. I love when he, what he says before he gets up to preach. He talks about, and I don't know the statement, you know it memorized. This is the, the word of God, right? And this is truth, and this is... And so we're going by the, the written word of God. That is what we're going by. He doesn't give any new revelation. We don't need any more. So people that talk about this, the Lord is not endorsing, by the way, what I heard somebody told me recently. He said, well, you know, he was in a church one time, and the, the guy was preaching in the pulpit, and he said this. He was preaching, and all of a sudden he stopped, and he looked up to heaven. He says, what would you say, Lord? You don't want me to say that? Okay, I won't say that then. That's not what this is about, this still small voice here. We're, we're talking about we, we need the written word of God today. We don't we need to add to the word of God some supposed personal revelation, some mystical experience that you claim. I don't really care what you think the word the God said to you. I want to know one thing. What does the written word actually, actually say to us? What does it say in the written word of God? And if his written word is not good enough, then we're, what we're doing here is in vain. It doesn't make any sense. But we know this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And nothing else is given by inspiration of God, by the way, okay? So the Lord reveals himself to Elijah. Fourthly, the Lord reaffirms Elijah's ministry with new direction. He reaffirms his ministry with new direction. Look at verse 13. When Elijah heard it, heard this sound, this whisper, he wraps his face in his mantle, and his cloak. He wraps his face completely in his cloak. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave suggesting to us he was in the cave somewhere. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. After this revelation of God, Elijah is in such reverence and awe. He should be. Can you imagine going through all that? <laughs> I'd probably have fainted at this point, or maybe died at this point of a heart attack. He's in such reverence and all, he wraps his face in a mantle, comes to the entrance of the cave, and the Lord, and, and, he, and he's, by the way, why was he back there? Why was he back in the cave? He's supposed to be out there on the mountain. Well, possibly this is another situation like with Moses where the Lord said, I want you to stand on the rock here, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, kind of a cliff of the rock. I'll hide you there so you can't see my full glory. Obviously, he would have died. Maybe that happened here. It doesn't say. Maybe he was so frightened and should have been frightened by the experiences he heard and saw and wind and fire and earthquake. He hid in the cave. I would have been crawling in as far as I could back in the cave, personally. The text doesn't tell us exactly what happened. We'll have to let it go at that. But his reverence for God is obvious. But nevertheless, a voice speaks to him. Same voice that spoke to him in verse 9. Same question. It's the voice of God. By the way, the, verse, the word voice in verse 13, <clears throat> same word translated sound in verse 12. It's the word of the Lord again. 
as, as, as often happened in Elijah's life. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same answer. Why? Is it because the revelation of God had no effect upon him whatsoever? I hardly believe that. Uh, this experience would have an effect on anybody. It had to have an effect on him. But his answer is the same. Why is it the same? Because it's true. Israel has forsaken God. and They've embraced the Baals. That's the truth. After all this, it's the truth, still the truth. They want to get rid of the prophets of God. That's the truth. Now, I like what a couple of commentators did say for a change, by the way. I'm always criticizing these guys. I know that. But there's some guys that are really good out there, by the way, okay? Um, that they think that Elijah is bringing a lawsuit against Israel. Well, that's interesting. Uh, Israel has broken his covenant. And guys like Del Ralph Davis say, say that he has, broken, he has brought a lawsuit against Israel. They've broken his covenant. They must suffer the consequences. Well, I like that. <laughs> However you label this, Elijah is accusing Israel. Without a doubt, he's accusing Israel. This accusation by Elijah is brought up again, by the way, somewhere else. Where? Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, 2. God says this, or it says this, God is, Paul says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Israel. He hasn't rejected them. Or do you not know the script, what the scripture says about Elijah? Now we're back in 1 Kings 19. What does the scripture say about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, it says. Don't you know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? He's pleading with God against Israel because they are forsaking God. We'll come back to Romans 11 in a second. Now, how does the Lord reply to Elijah's pleading against Israel? Well, there's a twofold response. First of all, there will be judgment for Israel. Look at verses 15 to 17. Judgment for Israel. The Lord said to him, to Elijah, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you will anoint Hazael, king over Aram, Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall appoint, anoint his prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah, shall put to death. In other words, the Lord approves of this accusation of Elijah. He says, I'm bringing judgment. I will bring judgment. The judgment's coming to Israel because of their bell worship. How's that going to happen? Three men are going to be involved. Number one, Hazael. Number two, Jehu. Number, number three, Elijah. Hazael is eventually going to replace his father, Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Aram or Syria. And that won't happen until 2 Kings chapter 8, by the way. He's, he's going to be the enemy of Israel. He's going to attack Israel. This is my judgment on Israel. Secondly, Jehu will become the king of Israel. What's he going to do? He's going to judge the house of Ahab and Jezebel. He will do that. And three, Elijah is going to come, and he's, as a future prophet of God, being trained by Elijah, he too will be an instrument of, 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 of judgment upon Israel, just like Elijah was. And these three will supplement each other in their judgment on Israel. What one guy doesn't get, the other guy's going to handle. Elijah will anoint Elisha as prophet. Elijah will anoint Hosea and Jehu. This is the message of judgment upon Israel. After all this prayer, this accusation, maybe a lawsuit, he says, <coughs> Lord says, judgment's coming to Israel. That's true. That's the first reply. First reply. And secondly, God says, <coughs> God, sorry, excuse me. God says there will be a remnant in Israel. A remnant in Israel. Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Seems like no one, Elijah, think about it, you're Elijah. 
it seems like no one is serving the Lord but you. You don't hear of anybody out there doing anything. You're taking a stand for God. You're, 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 you, know, you pray for no rain for three years, and then it rains again after you pray again, and you go through all these things, and, you, and you're at Mount Carmel and all these. And it seems like you're the only one serving God. Everyone's serving Bill. But in response to Elijah's statement that he's the only one left, God says this, no, there are 7,000 left that have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that statement, every mouth that has not kissed him, has to do with the respect and the affection that Baal worshipers had for their God. Maybe they kissed him on the feet even. But this verse is also quoted in Romans 11. And there, the point is this, God has a remnant. God has a remnant. There was a great apostasy in Elijah's time, just like there was in Paul's time from the nation of Israel, and there will be judgment on Israel. Yes, there will be judgment on Israel, but there will also be a remnant. i to keep that in mind always. Always a remnant God has. Always people. Paul said, I quoted this verse to you when he was in Corinth. He said, don't be afraid to speak. I have much people in this city. God always has a remnant. And Paul says in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This is a message of hope. Elijah doesn't think there's anybody out there. Maybe there's prophets that aren't really doing a whole lot. He's been discouraged. It's encouraging to know that though there are many who reject God, nevertheless, God has his people. So the Lord affirms Elijah's ministry with a new direction. This is what I want you to do. Anoint these guys. And then finally, the Lord provides Elijah with an assistant in ministry. He provides Elijah with an assistant in ministry. Verse 19 so he departed from there and found Elisha, Elisha the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he was the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him, his cloak, on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Elijah, Elijah no sooner gets his marching orders, he's off. He's off now with new direction. He's been strengthened by God. You can imagine this experience he's been through, strengthened by God. The first thing he does is to anoint Elisha. Elisha's out there plowing in the field. Why didn't he go after some theological giant, right? He's, he gets a farmer. He's out there plowing in the field. Back, he's got 12 pairs of oxen, by the way, which shows, in all likelihood, he's coming from a wealthy family. And, and Elijah goes up and throws his cloak on Elijah, which is symbolic, meaning saying, you're going to come under my training in the service of a prophet. God is calling you to be a prophet. And so that's what happens. Now, Elijah was not looking for that. He wasn't looking for that. It just came. It was unexpected. He's out plowing the field. has no intention of being anything other than a farmer, but God calls him. By the way, it's best to always be providentially led by God to do his work. Don't, you don't need to self, you know, we don't need any self-appointment to the ministry. We never need that. Let God do the providential leading, as he does here. So Elisha gets this message, and out of respect and love for his parents, he goes, he wants to say goodbye to them, which is appropriate. Can't argue with that. Now, I know what you're thinking, Luke 9, 62, what about the guy over there? Elisha's not the guy in Luke 9, 62 who may have wanted to stay with his father until he died, Elijah does say goodbye to his parents, and he does follow Elijah. He, he goes to do the work. The statement, go back again for what I've done to you, is somewhat challenging, but it could mean this. It could be a challenge to, to, 
from Elijah to say, go ahead and say your goodbyes, but get serious, stay serious about your, your, your not apostolic calling, your calling to be a prophet, prophetic service. So Elisha responds by, what does he do? Sacrifices his oxen, burns his implements. He's serious. He's going to go do this thing. He gets rid of everything back at the home front, and he follows Elijah, and he does, he ministers to him. He becomes Elijah's servant and his disciple and his companion. And then you see in 2 Kings the great respect that he has for Elijah. So Elijah is blessed again, encouraged again. That's not the only reason that happened, because Elijah has a ministry to Israel. Again, the Lord shows his love for Elijah in all these ways, Elijah in all these ways, and his purposes are accomplished also towards Israel. The Lord ministered to Elijah's physical needs. He invited him to unburden his heart. He reveals himself to Elijah. He reaffirms his ministry with new direction, and he gives him an assistant in ministry. Again, I asked a question I asked a couple of weeks ago, for a couple of weeks now, are you discouraged in regard to the ministry? In regard to the ministry in this church, in regard to your ministry, in regard to the, the people you minister to, are you discouraged right now? Are you weary in well-doing? Has this ungodly world got you worn down like it did Elijah? Is your soul vexed by all the unrighteousness around you see like the soul of Lot was? Are you troubled by all the spiritual stagnation you see, maybe even in our own church? Or are you just discouraged for any reason at all? Remember this, the Lord is good. He loves his own. He loves his own. Be encouraged tonight, by the way, if you're discouraged. Why? We're on the winning side. Elijah was not a failure in ministry. He was faithful. As long as we're faithful to God, we're serving God, even if we don't see great things happening, even if people are turning their backs on God, like in Israel's time, even if people are rejecting Christ, we're on the winning side. The Lord's sovereign over his work. By the way, the Lord's not discouraged. He's never discouraged. We might be, but he's not. So why should we be? Jesus is coming again. We have the Bible as our guide. We have the Holy Spirit to indwell us. We have much to encourage us. We don't need to be discouraged. And I think Elijah learned his lesson. Let me close with a verse I read a few weeks ago, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, pray. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, what a great verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word again. We pray that you will encourage us tonight, Lord, maybe some that are discouraged tonight, or maybe coming down the road, discouragements are awaiting us. Just pray you'll encourage us with your word, encourage us by the examples in your word, encourage us with your spirit tonight. We just pray that we would, uh, work, we would work as unto you, work with a, uh, a zeal, like Elijah had, Lord, be zealous for the Lord God of hosts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.